0: Uh, This uh, thing, it it was in the New York Times. They talked about this 5% doctrine. Uh, They gathered a bunch of leaders, pastors, youth workers, and said, what are we doing wrong? Uh, How can we uh, try to have a better retention rate uh, sort of an approach? And I thought the whole thing was kind of unbiblical and not very helpful because having worked with young people and understanding what the Bible says, I think it's very clear that the reason people walk away from their faith is because of what we talked about last night. It's because their faith isn't genuine. So if a person goes to college and they don't stay Christian, as it were, uh, it's not, the issue is, is that they were never Christians to begin with. And the problem isn't that we don't have good enough programs transitioning Christian young people from high school to college problem is that we're not often explaining the gospel clearly enough so that young people understand what it is to be a Christian in the first place. It's so important that you understand the gospel, that you understand what it means to be a Christian. Uh, The whole idea of having a demographic of people that identify themselves as Christians and go to Christian colleges or secular colleges and maintain some kind of handle uh, called Christian, but don't follow Jesus in their lives is very dangerous thing. So I would rather see a massive drop off and an understanding of true conversion than some kind of culturally uh, connected Christianity where everybody claims to be a Christian, but who really is not. And so my burden in this talk that I've given uh, to high school seniors and to college students, having worked both with high schoolers and as my kids call them, collegers. It just seems like it'd be the right adverb, but it's not. Uh, With college students is that you would have some, some words to hang on to as you make this transition towards more autonomy, towards more freedom, towards more independence because that's what most of you will experience. Uh, When you move from uh, high school to college, uh, greater responsibilities, greater freedom, and even greater consequences when you mess up. Uh, Your parents have done a lot to shelter you from the consequences of your actions in high school. They've rescued you from dumb things that you've done or almost done, and that doesn't happen as often when you're in college. Uh, When you make big uh, mistakes in college, you. Do not get the kind of grace and the kind of mercy uh, that your parents extended to you when you lived under their roof. Instead, uh, if you don't go to class and you don't buy your books and you don't uh, do your work, I really there's no truancy officer. You just become one of another uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of college dropouts who are trying to find themselves and wander around the planet. Uh, if you Uh, Keep the same friends that you had in high school. If they were a good group of friends, a bad group of friends, you know exactly what your social circle will look like. If you're moving to a new town, uh, the things that come with you are the things within you, things like your own heart and your own struggles. And just moving from one place to another doesn't really change anything. And so I, I want us to carefully think about what it means to stay Christian in college, because I assume that's what your concern would be. You're here, you're focused on your spiritual life this week. Maybe you've made a new commitment to Christ. Perhaps you've become aware of things that you need to change in your life. And this is the perfect time in your life to address some of those things and to make some commitments, some basic commitments, uh, some words to hang uh, the next four years of your life on that will help you direct you and guide you to where uh, you need to be for greater faithfulness to Jesus in college. Uh, Because when you go to college, your worldview will be under attack. And that's even true if you go to a Christian college, because there will be people around you at that school who do not believe like you believe. There'll be people around you, even at a Christian school, who will want and try to pull you to their uh, area of gravitation uh, there. Low levels of holiness there. Uh, compromises uh, sinners are never content to walk the road alone. They always want to bring other people along with them. And so wherever you go to school, whether it's a, a bubble of a Christian college or whether it's a pseudo-Christian college that just has the name Christian in it, or whether it's a secular university, or whether you're just going into the workplace to try to get started on a career or take a year off or whatever your plan is, I wanna give you some words, four of them, that will help you handle this upcoming year, this newfound freedom, and maximize it for your spiritual growth. Rather than experiencing what so many church kids experience, which is the beginning stages of walking away from your faith and even the greater danger of apostasy of walking away in such a way that you'll never return to Jesus. And so that's my desire and that's my prayer. Let me pray for you and then I'll give you the four words. Father, thank you for these young people. And I ask that you would sustain their faith, that you would fulfill all your good promises to them, that their faith would be genuine, that you would work in them to grow them into Christ-likeness, that as they enter into this opportunity for greater responsibility and greater freedom, that they would use that for your glory and for their spiritual good. I pray that they would be effective evangelists, that they would be uh, heartfelt servants in their churches, and that you would help them to grow and to learn and to be more like Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Okay. Your four words. Word number one is purpose, purpose. And if you have a Bible, open it to Ephesians 5, 16, a verse you probably all heard, Ephesians 5, 16. I think the reason we start with this word purpose is so many students that transition from high school to college lack purpose. They don't know why they're doing what they're doing they don't even know why they're going to school, except that that's what's expected of them. They don't know why they're they're on the planet. And it's really sad to see the age 18 to 24, used to be 26 now, uh, This this kind of college years, lived with such a lack of purpose. And if you don't have a plan, if you don't understand your purpose, in these upcoming years, you will waste an extraordinary portion of your life that you could have maximized for your future self and for the glory of God. So many adults that you talk to will have their deepest regrets about the choices they made from age 18 to 26. And it's the crossroads of your life. It's when you're making the most important decisions that you'll make for your whole life. You're deciding, will you worship God without your parents' influence uh, in the same way? You're not a little kid anymore. You're an adult. Will you rise up on the Lord's day and gather with God's people and worship? You're deciding, am I going to be someone who is going to uh, work hard and earn a living? Am I going to be someone who... Uh, is generous with what I have. You're deciding the kind of person that you're gonna spend the rest of your life with. One of the great ironies of marriage is that you make the most important decision uh, in your life, who you'll spend your whole life with uh, at an age where you know very little. So nothing against you. You just will know more 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Uh, But you're going to literally choose your spouse most likely in the next five or six years. And I look back on my life and I praise God for his providence and his guidance, but it certainly wasn't on me for being a smart guy because I made a ton of dumb decisions in those years. And it was only by God's grace that he sustained me. And so in in talking about purpose, if you were to be able to talk to yourself 10 years from now, write yourself a letter 20 years from now, I'm confident that one of the things that you would say to yourself would be to live these next four to six years with purpose, to be mindful of the opportunities that you have, of the tremendous freedom that you have, and to use that in a way that will bring God maximum glory and be good for your soul and your life and your progress. So purpose, Ephesians five sixteen talks about this. It says, Uh, He's he's talking about uh, being illuminated in this passage of of waking up, O sleeper, open your eyes and understand what God's plan is. He says in verse 15, be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's that verse 15 that tells you to be mindful of how you walk. And verse 16 that says you need to, your Bible might have a different translation and say redeem the time. Is that what your Bible says? Redeeming the time for the days are evil or because the days are evil. He uses a metaphor that's that's one of the most abundant metaphors in the New Testament, the idea of walking. It's just one foot in front of another. We all know what it is, but it's a perfect metaphor that the apostle uses for the Christian life. To get up the next day, to be obedient to Jesus, to do what he's called you to do is the Christian life. It's often not filled with Uh, fancy roller coaster sweeps and swoops and hills and valleys. Instead, most of the Christian life is just like walking. It's one foot in front of the other. It requires consistency and balance and care as you walk and watch where you're stepping. That's what he says in your walk, in your following of Jesus. Uh, Walk one foot in front of the other as a wise person, not as a foolish person. And then he defines what a Christian walk would look like as it relates to time. And that's why I'm talking to you about time and purpose. Because if you look at these next four to six years, however long you have in this kind of transitional crossroads stage of life, you could use this time to bring tremendous benefit to your soul if you understand that time is ticking and the clock is turning. And as this globe spins, another day has passed and another day full of opportunities for you to do what you, w- what you will have wished you would have done when it comes to judgment day. And so he tells them in verse 16, redeem the time or make the most of your time, the translation may say. That word redeem, you know it, right? Redeem? You know what it's what it's related to normally, the way it was used in the, in the Bible? You've heard of redemption, right? You probably don't really think of, of you know, a, an hour in the day being something that you redeem. But do you understand what, it, what the basis of that word is? It does. It comes from slavery. In the ancient world, slavery was very different than the slavery we're familiar with, uh, the evil of American slavery. In the ancient world, slavery was a condition that people were bought out of quite regularly and they were given freedom and it was called redemption. A price was paid for a person who could even sell themselves into slavery and they could earn enough money to be gotten out of their condition. So this idea of redemption is most often used in the world of Greco-Roman slavery. It's a funny word to use about time. It's as if to say you can buy back time. There's two Greek words for time. One of them means seconds, hours, days, minutes. That's not the word in Ephesians 5.16. It's a word that means uh, periods of time or epochs or ages or stages or moments. It's talking about pieces of time, sections of time, uh, calendar months, that kind of a Uh, It's not so much measurable units as it is a part of life. And so this verse has a lot to say to people thinking about a particular part of their life. What Paul is telling the Ephesians is they need to ransom or redeem or buy back these sections of time. And why would you have to buy them back? Well, he says in verse 16, because the days are evil. You live in this present world, and this world is an evil place. It's full of people who, like all of us, are fallen and who are evil. And this world is ruled over by the prince of the power of the air, the devil. The whole world system is corrupt and crooked. And in this world system, the natural flow of your life will be to waste your life. Now, don't make too big of a difference between stages of time and minutes of time because stages of time are made of minutes of time seconds become minutes and minutes become hours and hours become weeks and weeks months and months years and years decades and decades lifetimes so if you waste your days you waste your life and the apostle's concern in Ephesians 5:16 is that you live with purpose that you have a plan for your existence on the planet And I don't think that means that you have to nail down every single detail of your life in the future. The Bible warns against that kind of thinking. But a wise man makes a plan. A wise man plans out how, in the book of Proverbs, how he will sow seed and harvest it and make a profit. All of that is not unbiblical thinking, it's biblical thinking. Considering the will of God, is your sanctification, for you to give Jesus Christ honor and glory, Uh, the greatest mistake you can make in these next four years is to not have an understanding of purpose in your life, to know that you live for a reason, that God made you for a reason, to give him ultimate glory, for you to live for him and not for yourself. That's how to maximize these next college years. You all know people who have no purpose, You all know people who have no plan and who just float around through life, going wherever the tide takes them. This is not the Christian way. This is not the way of Ephesians 5.16. Instead, we're eager to buy back time that could be used for evil, but we want to use for good and God's glory. And we want to redeem it. We want to change it from its status of useless and evil time to profitable and purposeful time. That's the Christian's mentality towards the next four years of your life. It can be in simple, practical things like not changing your major 700 times. It could be in simple, practical things like finishing the classes that you start. It could be in simple, practical things like learning to be financially responsible with the meager money that you have as a college student. But all those habits that you train yourself in now will pay dividends in your life later. And I know none of this sounds very flashy, uh, but what you have to understand before you can have this great missionary mindset to be the next Hudson Taylor, Hudson Taylor had his act together. And that's what I'm pleading with you to do. And uh, maybe I sound like your grumpy mom or your, uh, your purposeful father or your sweet grandmother or whatever, but I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you, what I believe you would tell yourself decades from now to use these years better than you would have. So that's your first word is is uh, purpose. Uh, let's talk about the next word. And I, I don't think Christians make enough of this word. It's the word progress, progress. First Timothy four fifteen and 16. 1 Timothy 4, 15 and 16 says, uh, you know, this is Paul, Apostle Paul, writing to his young protege, his disciple, his son in the faith, a guy named Timothy. He was a young man. He wasn't super young like you guys. He was like in his 30s, young like me. And he said to Timothy, be diligent or take pains in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, this is advice given in the context of a young man in ministry. He was a man who was a pastor and he needed to do the right thing to set the church in order, to appoint leaders and to care for people's souls and to preach the word. That's the context of what's happening here. But this is a principle that Paul gives to Timothy that I think is transcendent and isn't just for pastors. I think it applies to every single one of you that we ought to be diligent in these matters. What matters is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the gospel in verse nine and 10, He's talking about good doctrine in verse 11. He's talking about a devotion to uh, public worship in verse 13, things that are not just pastoral concerns, but every Christian's concern. So ought you to be diligent or to take pains in matters pertaining to life and to godliness? I mean, what else matters but life and godliness? Give me something else that matters. What doesn't fit in the categories of life and godliness? And so he tells you to pay attention to this. That's the idea of the purpose. But what I wanna pick up on here is at this stage in your life, this would be a great time for you to start to think about making observable progress. I mean, all of you were probably shoved up against the wall as a kid, and they put a pencil on your head next to your brothers and sisters, and they marked on the wall. I meant that in a respectful way. Seemed like I was rubbing your head, but I was actually measuring your growth. Right? Okay. Did your parents do that? Yeah. With all the Lang siblings lined up, you got so where was where they do it on the on the, in the kitchen on the door. In the jam. kitchen on the door jam. Classic Americana. <laughs> so they were measuring you because of your you know your growth. Somehow it surprises us parents that our kids grow. I don't know what we <laughs> expected to happen, but that's. For some reason, we look at them and we go, ah, you grew up and now you grow beards. What's happening? So the same way that they marked your growth and they charted your progress and they kept track of your development, a wise believer is mindful that he has a responsibility to grow as a Christian. And the ways that you grow as a Christian are manifold. They're all graces of God, things like prayer, Bible study, serving in the church, worshiping God with God's people, all of those are means to spiritual growth. But you should be seeing progress in your life. You should be able to observe uh, progress in your sanctification, in your desire to be more like Jesus, in your pursuit of holiness. And there's a balance to be struck here because I'm not telling you that you will find victory over all your sin uh, before age 25. It's not going to happen. It's not. God never even promises. it. He promises victory over sin uh, when he glorifies you and takes you out of this body of flesh and redeems you fully and finally and glorifies you and makes you like Jesus when you're in heaven. That's when victory comes. Sometimes you hear Christians claiming victory over sin and victory over the devil. Uh, they're, They're not totally wrong, but they're awfully premature. It's not victory we're after here when I'm talking about progress. I'm talking about obedience, obedience. One of the most impactful chapters I ever read was in a book by Jerry Bridges called Pursuit of Holiness. I highly recommend that book to young people everywhere. Uh, Jerry Bridges just went to be with Jesus a few years ago. It's another way of saying he died. And uh, he was a good and godly man and his books were used in the lives of college students. This one, especially, a chapter called Obedience Not Victory transformed the way I thought about my own struggle against sin. Because no longer was I trying to uh, emerge to never sin again. Instead, I was trying to put one foot in front of the other and obey what Jesus said in the moment and in the day and in the week to come. It's a completely different kind of battle, and I think it's a helpful one. And it's one where you'll be able to measure progress. Uh, The more effort you put towards your spiritual growth, towards getting rid of your bad habits, towards gaining more discipline over your appetites, over your desires, over bringing sanctification to reign in every part of your life, you will see progress. And progress should be measurable, not only to you, but look what Paul said. So that everyone may see your progress. Won't it be sweet when you come home from a semester at college and your parents see that you have gained some good habits? that maybe you even got rid of some of the things that used to bug your mom. That you actually pick your stuff up now. That you've uh, figured out how to a better manage your emotions. All of these things that you know, you know what your weaknesses are, you know what your struggles are. Imagine making measurable progress on them. So much so that it's not just when you look in the mirror and think what a great job I've done, but other people look at your life and they say, God's really working in that young man. God's really working in that young lady. And it's an encouragement to the church. It'll be encouragement to your family and to your brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's progress. That's what sanctification is all about. So we have purpose, we have progress, and we have... Ooh, I like this one. Two more. This one's called purity. Purity. It's obvious that this is the stage of your life where purity is a pressing issue. Uh, young men have a gibbering ape within their loins is what the Puritans said and uh, you understand that through the changes that you've experienced you are now men and women men and women and there's obvious implications of that some of you want to get married more than you want to have your next breath and the time will come and the opportunity will arise and you're gonna find someone and you will have an opportunity to bring about God's plan of marriage, either in a way that honors him or dishonors him, in a way that will honor your future spouse or dishonor your future spouse. Christians have the absolute highest standards of purity when it comes to things related to sexuality. Christians have the absolute highest standards of purity and that's gonna be a great struggle in this area of your life. As you find a young man and a young lady and you're, tra- and you're attracted to each other and you're thinking about getting married and you wonder how far is too far and how close can we get and how physical should this relationship be uh, before we get married and can we hold hands and can we uh, hug necks and, and on and on and on. And I would just urge you to think of the words of First Thessalonians 4 which tells you that Christians have the absolute highest standards of purity. Uh, Look at what it says in 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, Verse three, actually starting with verse one. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority Of the Lord Jesus. Verse 3 It is God's will that you should be sanctified or made holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him for the Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. You know, every bit of advice about purity that you've heard in the church since you were a young person ought to have been rooted and grounded in your union with Christ. Purity, sexual purity, saving yourself from marriage, is not a virtue that's cultivated apart from union with Christ. That's why this verse says, it talks to you about God's calling, it talks to you about God's will, It talks to you about the contrast between those who do not know God. It's why it says, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Paul always thinks about sexuality as it relates to spirituality. It's interesting. That's why he tells the Corinthians and warns them, if you unite yourself to a prostitute, you unite Christ to a prostitute. Why? Because sexuality and spirituality are entwined. They're not... They're not able to be divided. They're inseparable. That's why marriage is such an amazing God-given gift where two people become one flesh. And when you decide to not go about that one flesh union in the way that God has prescribed, saving yourself, one man, one woman, for a lifetime together of, of joy and marriage and companionship and bringing glory to God... God's plan for marriage is good. He invented it before the before the fall of man. Uh, marriage is, is made for men's happiness and holiness, and it can bring great glory and honor to God when it's done in a way that pleases God. And so you can choose your way, the way of the heathen and the pagan, the way of those who do not know God and have no union with the spirit, or you can go God's way and watch what it's like to have a marriage that honors God where sexuality and true spirituality are melded into one. It is this stage of life where the most critical mistakes are made as it comes to cultivating bad appetites, bad habits, and sinful desires when it comes to sexuality. So whether it is that you deal with same-sex attraction, uh, homosexuality, you know that this is something that God has forbidden. But It's not God's will for your life. He has a better plan for you in the union of a man and a woman. It's how he created us to live and to love. All of us have brokenness. All of us have sinful desires. All of us have been bent out of shape by the fall, but all of us can be changed by the grace of God. And sometimes the manifestation isn't in same-sex desire. Sometimes that manifestation, most often that manifestation is in lust. It's just the wanton, an extravagant desire for something that you want so bad, more than anything else. It could be, uh, it could be uh, longing after things like pornography. It could be just the pursuit of lots of relationships with lots of guys or lots of girls. This is not God's will for your life. First Thessalonians four says, "Flee." sexual immorality like Joseph of old who was confronted with an opportunity to sleep with Potiphar's wife. You need to run away from those situations and pursue purity because the reason for purity isn't just so that you're a good Christian kid. The reason for purity isn't so that you don't get an STD. Ooh, scary STDs or teen pregnancies. and Then you have to go on a really awful reality show. Uh, That's, that's not why you pursue purity. The reason you pursue purity is because the holiness of God matters to you, because the judgment and wrath of God is a real thing. I remember going to purity seminars when I was in high school, raised in the church, and hearing people try to scare us with, with you know, uh, I don't know, abstinence programs kind of stuff. I remember in health class having to carry around in middle school a bag of flour so that you'd know, I guess, like babies are heavy or something to carry a bag of flour. Let me tell you, we, we have had babies at my house. We have babies and the babies have grown to be ninos. And these babies are nothing like a bag of flour. Let me tell you what you do with a bag of flour. Put it in your locker. Don't do that to babies. Let me tell you what a bag of flour doesn't do. Poop all over you. Babies Do. Pardon my language, I said poop. That's why why I didn't use a microphone. What a dumb exercise. The consequences of sexual immorality are not a baby or an STD. The consequences of sexual immorality are the wrath of God. I mean, I I wish that was the motivation they led with at the purity seminar. Not like, you know, you'll have emotional consequences. Yeah, those things might be true, but those things aren't ultimate god's ultimate and so to think about what god is calling you to as a holy part of his family as one united with christ that the choices you make with your physical body and in your sexuality will be intertwined with who you are in your soul just ramps up i hope you already have a a ramped up and a and a God-centered and a highly exalted view of marriage. It's not a bad idea for you to learn about marriage, even at this stage. I'm not telling you to take a premarital class with your girlfriend. I think that's always really creepy. Because um, then when you're, when you're actually engaged and you take the class, it's like, yeah. oh yeah, I remember this part. Oh, because you were in there before with your girlfriend, weirdos. Okay, so uh, you know, I just think that's, that's too much too soon. Instead, it's not a bad idea to learn how to be a, a good and godly man because most of those things will translate to being a good and godly husband. If you have questions about marriage, about a healthy marriage relationship, uh, it's not wrong to read a, read a book about marriage, to learn about what a Christian marriage is like, especially if you didn't grow up in a Christian family. I grew up in a, in a family that, that did not have a Christian marriage and I, I had no idea what a godly husband would look like. No idea. I didn't have a good model growing up for that. But by God's grace, he brought people into my life to disciple me, men who love their wives as Christ loved the church, and they taught me and they helped me. And by God's grace, I seek to grow as a husband who loves and honors his wife. Uh, ladies, to learn what it's like to submit to a husband. Uh, it's not your responsibility to submit to all these weird dudes in this room. You have one guy you submit to, your dad and then your husband. And we all submit to the Lord, learning to follow is a great skill to have. And so the pursuit of purity, having a robust doctrine of marriage, all that is part of, of this four, third principle of purity. Okay, let's wrap it up. And then I'll take some questions if you have some. Uh, you could have been interrupting me the whole time too. I, I didn't mean for this to be such a blah, blah, blah. blah. Uh, fifth one and final. And I talked about this a little bit last night, but I'll just give you a fancy word that you may or may not know. Write it down, polity, P-O-L-I-T-Y, polity. Polity, who knows that word? Of course not. It's a weird, weird Christian word. That guy knows it, but he's not young. Uh, Polity is, uh, it comes from polis. It's uh, a word that means uh, doctrine of the church. It's just what do you believe about the church? Uh, You may be married someday, you maybe will not. Uh, You may be employed, you may be not. You may be retired, you may be not. You'll have lots of stages of life in your life where things will change. When you were single, when you had little kids, when your kids grew up and went to college, when you bought an RV and toured the Netherlands, whatever. They'll have stages of life. That was a really weird choice that you made to do that. Uh, So one thing that will always be constant if you're a follower of Jesus is you'll always be part of the church. You'll always be part of the church. God's people, since Jesus rose from the grave, have been committed to gathering together on the Lord's day and worshiping Jesus. And that is your Christian priority. Hebrews 10.25 would convince you of that when it warns the Hebrew Christians who were not meeting together, not because they were lazy. I think people don't go to church today because they're lazy or because they don't need other people or because they think they don't need other people or because they think that no churches are good enough for them or, or whatever. Uh, the people in the book of Hebrews were admonished to not uh, stop going to church because they were scared they were going to get arrested or killed. I mean, that, that's a completely different reason than the excuses people have today for not going to church. Oh, I got a lot of homework. Uh, I'm taking, you know, six units at the community college. I can't I can't pull it off and show up. I got to get my 12 hours of sleep or I'm a wreck. So I remember... I'll tell you a little story that will maybe reinforce the need for a good, robust polity, doctrine and understanding and love for the church. Uh, I'm, I saw I was at my, went to Starbucks this is before I repented and became a, became a coffee snob. But I was at Starbucks one day, Starbucks, and <laughs> the barista looked familiar to me. He had eyes that I remembered from junior high, but his face was like Che Guevara beard. And uh, I said, I'll call him Seth because his name was Seth. <laughs> uh, I said, Seth, is that you behind that, that uh, masculine facial hair, uh, Zapatista style? And he's like, yeah, hey Austin, how's it going? Like, I haven't seen you in years since junior high. And I have a series of, of things that I do in this situation when I run into kids that came to camp one time. Uh, so don't be offended, you're already gonna know what my questions are when I see you, you know, at Starbucks someday, star. <laughs> and i said seth how you doing oh i'm good i'm good you yeah yeah good i said seth uh, so are you still a christian and he was <clears throat> oh, super offended but that's always my question uh and are you still a christian because lots of people said they were christians at one time and then kind of you know do whatever they want to do so he says of course My oh, kind of question is, oh oh Offended, feared. <laughs> and, and I said, uh, and so then I always have a second question that follows that question like a uh, evil dog follows a mailman. Uh, so, first question, are you a Christian? Second question is, where do you go to church? That's what I always ask. So, you know, if I'm going to catch you off guard, my, you already know my two questions. Are uh, you still a Christian? Where do you go to church? You even have a beard. It's like deja vu. It's like deja vu. So, so Seth says, oh yeah, no, you know, I, I go to, it depends. You know, I really like to worship at this one church. I got a band. I'm... And so we'll go there sometimes. And then like, sometimes I go to the campus ministry thing, but not anymore because I don't like this one guy. And, you know, my friends go to this church, but, you know, more often than not, I'll just have fellowship. You know, like I'll just go with, with my brothers and the Lord to the movies and stuff. And, you know, and, and you know, I listen to praise in my car. You know, Matt Redmond gives me 10,000 reasons <laughs> and stuff. So, you know, I do that. And, uh, you know, I, I just looked at Seth and I said, Seth, you don't have any accountability. And he was even more offended. And, you know, he might've spit in my... Americano, But that's, that's the price for following Jesus. So, uh, you know, that, but that's just a, that's a, a classic and typical example of, of how people have a weak polity or a weak ecclesiology. It's your understanding of what the church is and how it's led and what it should be like. And this is especially pertinent to those of you who are going to a, a, go to school somewhere away from home. How many of you are doing that? Raise your hand. So some of you will go to school away from home. Your first priority is to find a good church. And it may not look, feel, and smell exactly like your church back home. It's in a different place. It has different people. They use different construction materials. Maybe the music is different. You need to get over yourself and get over your preferences and go to church. One of my first jobs I ever had at Grace was being the pastor of the day. It's like being the soup of the day. And people would call in on the phone and they heard John MacArthur on the radio. And so they're like, I need some advice from John MacArthur. And John MacArthur can't take 10,000 calls like that every day. So they would send you to someone who's the pastor of the day. Sadly, that was me. And I was a seminary student in a basement on a phone and it would ring and somebody's like, is this John MacArthur? And I'd be like, no. I'm the pastor of the day. <laughs> Yesterday it was chicken zucchini, today it's me. Uh, so more often than not, they would say, uh, you know, I got, a, I got a Bible question. It's about the seven headed beast and the horror Babylon. And I, I, I got some stuff you got to iron out for me about Revelation 10 and stuff. And I'm like, oh, mercy. So I would always turn that conversation before I would get into the seven headed beasts. And I would say, nice to meet you, sir. Where do you go to church? So all of a sudden they're calling Pastor Day. Pastor Day is asking them all kinds of probing questions. What kind of soup is this? And I said, where do you go to church? And more often than not, you know what they would say? Oh, in my town, there's no churches. All apostasy, false doctrine. Devils. I only believe what John MacArthur says on the radio. I'm like, well, John MacArthur says on the radio to go to church. So where do you live? I assume they live in like Sudan, a persecuted area, you know, where there, are no, there is no Christian witness. And they'd always be like, I live in Nashville. There's no church in Nashville? Wrong. Oh, I'm from Denver. Denver has 5 million people. There is a church in Denver, lots of churches. Maybe they don't believe what you believe about the seven-handed beef beast of Babylon in Revelation 10, but there are brothers and sisters who love Jesus there. Go worship with them. And then they'd hang up, call the next day, hope for a different soup of the day. So, what I'm telling you is learn how to discern polity, learn how to discern what matters in a church. There's a really good article on the Grace to You website, gty.org. You're all experts at Googling. It's how you wrote all your papers in high school. GTY.org, look for how to find a church. Uh, There's a great article on the Nine Marks website, a pastor in Washington, D.C. named Mark Dever. So you could Google Nine Marks, how to find a church. And you can always give me a Facebook message because it seems like I spend at least one day a week finding people churches who think that there's no church in their town. So I will send you to a Baptist church and they will be weird Baptists, but they love Jesus and you're gonna to have to deal with them. Uh, so that's, that's, uh, that's, that's my talk about polity. I forgot to give you verses for it. Uh, no, Hebrews 10, 25, I gave you that. And I also give you Acts five. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It's when God killed people at church. God takes church involvement, participation seriously, so much so that people who claim to be a part of the church but lied to the Holy Spirit and to the church leadership. God decided to kill them as an example of how seriously he takes a commitment to the church. The paragraph that follows that famous story of Ananias and Sapphira talks about how the people in the world viewed what happened that day when two fresh graves were outside that church. It says that no one dared Associate. It's a Greek word, etloma. It means to join or to glue together. No one dared associate with them out of fear of the Lord. But many joined their numbers. Isn't that an interesting contrast? So two people died because they weren't worshiping God right. And people who were looking at Christianity around the church went, I don't want any part of that. That's too serious of a commitment. But others said, I'm drawn to this. I want to worship Christ. I understand the consequences. And they took it seriously. I don't think people take church membership seriously. And church membership is an important part of polity. It's part of understanding that the church and your association, formal association with the church is both biblical and beneficial. You will not find a verse, First Imaginations 13, that says, join a church, become a formal member. But that's exactly what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years because it is the biblical teaching of Scripture that we are members one of another, that your participation in the church is formal rather than informal. In other words, it's good that the pastor wants to have your name and your phone number and to put you on the list because he has a responsibility of watching over your soul. So when you leave the church you're in and go join another church, it's wise and good to write a letter and say, I'm moving to this church. Uh, They're going to watch over me. And that's how Christians have operated for the entirety of church history. Today, Christians go to church like they're going to the Cinnabon at the mall. They're just coming as a customer. They get in line. They expect to be treated exactly perfectly or they'll go find another place for fattening cinnamon rolls. So that's not what the church is for. The church is a body of believers that loves one another, an imperfect group of people who loves Jesus the most and gathers to worship him each Sunday. And there are lots of things you look for in a good biblical church, like that it teaches the Bible. So don't think I'm saying you should you know, move to Houston and go to Joel Osteen's church and, and buy into garbage. Okay? That was a lot we covered there. That's my four points. Your questions, thoughts, comments, cries of outrage, shock, audacity, concern, preguntas. We have three minutes, go. Okay, who wants a Beaver shirt? <laughs> <laughs> it's torn, so you'll just have to use it as. <laughs> I am not giving you as the Beaver shirts. Go to... the Mud <laughs> pit. <picture. laughs> That's the mud, That's That's right. mud <laughs> pit shirt. Uh, no questions? Any, any questions? Trump's yes, sir, what's your name? Josh. Josh, how are you? Uh, good, good I'm, I'm well, just, just finished talking. Yeah. Uh, mas- books on masculinity. Uh, The first one that popped to mind is my favorite, but it comes with like a caution warning, like the CDs that say explicit language. Uh, and like a, so it's hmm. So let me think of a better one. Yes, I got a better one. I got a better one. Kent Hughes, Disciplines of a Godly Man. And then eventually there's a Doug Wilson book called Future Men, but it's got a bunch of bad stuff in it, but a lot of good stuff in it. So once you're 22, you can read future, <laughs> but before that, read Kent Hughes' excellent book on uh, man, godly man. The title I nailed just said. A Vodibakum on masculinity? Uh, yeah, he wrote a book called "Who Man Should Be If He Wants to Marry My Daughter" or something <laughs> like that. Um, yep. Yeah. Any other questions? Comments, outrageous remarks, go to session two, bye.